This morning, uh, we're going to continue in a series that actually we're going to conclude a series that we started a few weeks ago, uh, looking at the grand uh, story of the Bible in basically the Bible in four chapters. But today we're going to combine chapters two and three. I don't know if I'll do justice to both. But uh, we've been looking at the, what's also called the meta-narrative, like the big story of Scripture, uh, from creation then to uh, the fall, which Pastor Jason spoke about last week, and I heard it was fantastic. And then this week, we're going to look at redemption and restoration, because next week, we begin um, our Advent series. Can you believe it? Uh, today is the 24th. It is a month to Christmas Eve. And today we're going to have a wonderful uh, Christmas connecting lunch to kick this whole season off. That's a highlight for me today, baptism and lunch. You can't get any better. And the preaching of the word. It's like a, it's like a, a, triple, a triple home run here. So this is great. Um, Ephesians chapter one. If you have a Bible, turn there. We're going to spend uh, our time, the most, most of our time in Ephesians one verses seven through 10. If you're, if you're uh, new to Central, maybe it's your first time here this morning, uh, welcome. Mine, uh, I've been introduced, but I'm Eldon, and I'm uh, just one of uh, a bunch of pastors we have on staff. And I just want to let you know that I'm so blessed to, to be part of an awesome church, to serve uh, alongside all of you um, as we glorify Jesus together and make him known in our community. I'm, I'm blessed uh, to have excellent leadership at Central who gives such good guidance to us and blessed to have a great staff team uh, to work with. Truly am. Central's an amazing place. And so uh, this fall, uh, September, all of our team, our staff team, gathered together uh, at our Chilliwack campus for a retreat day, which we do every year. In fact, a couple of times a year. And we had a couple of uh, people come in and speak to us and we have good discussion and prayer time. Uh, but we also have uh, lunch, which is a highlight. It was a good lunch. Uh, there was uh, games out on the table, so we could actually have some fun together too, not just a serious work day. But a spontaneous game of ping pong broke out. There was a table set up, and some guys said, hey, let's play. And I just kind of watched for a while, and then one of them left and invited me into this uh, game. And I went, oh, no, <laughs> I have not played this game for such a long time. And true, you know, sure enough, uh, it, it, it wasn't going well. I call it ping pong because for those who take it seriously, it's actually table tennis. That's not me. I'm a ping ponger. And, uh, and so we, um, my side of the table, we were playing doubles. We went down awfully fast. And I, you know, I'm intimidated by the likes of, you know, the Jason Walls and the Chris Battles and the Jonathan Newfelts and the Dan Sluices, you know, out there who take these things more seriously than I do. And, uh, and we're, we're falling behind big time. And I turned to my partner, I think it was Jason that I was playing with. And I said, man, I really need to redeem myself here because this is not good. And sure enough, the game turned around. We got the ball back. We started, you know, to serve. We're getting some points. They got the ball. We continued to go up. We're up by two. And then Pastor Matt calls us back to lunch. And I was like, oh, I didn't get to experience full redemption. But that is one way, oh, and on a more serious note, um, speaking about redemption, many of you have heard my story, but central, on a very serious note, is a huge factor, I believe, in my own personal redemption of sorts uh, in ministry because I came out of a bad situation, which I would call uh, a failed experience in ministry, where I lacked uh, not only confidence, but uh, faith somewhat, a little bit in God, but in his church, unfortunately. And Central has, has uh, restored that. 
it's been a it's been a place where um, where I could land on my feet again, where I could get that confidence and and restored faith in in uh, in him and his people. And uh, on Friday, the fifteenth, just a week ago, Friday, I began my seventh year of ministry at Central. And I praise God for that because it's a milestone for me. I've never made it this far in, in any one church and I'm just so excited. It feels like those seven year, six years have gone just like that. And I'm looking forward to the next six so that in year 14 I can celebrate with you again. Amen? Hopefully, God, Lord willing. And, uh, and, that, that, and, and we're just gonna reach more people for Jesus. I truly believe that. So redemption. Our culture connects with redemption in the ways that I just talk about. So you've got a situation that's bad that's turned around, right? There's a saving element to, to redemption. Um, you've, you've, you've got the situation that needs uh, to be corrected. It's going sideways and it gets put on the right course again. And our culture connects with this because every good book that you read or movie that you go to has this element of redemption, right? There's this scenario where things are going pretty good. All of a sudden it gets derailed and goes sideways. And then the hero saves the day or saves the organization or saves the entire planet or civilization. That's what most movies are all about, right? Good triumphs over evil. And uh, not long ago, we, we, uh, we celebrated uh, Remembrance Day where we remember those who uh, sacrificed to lay down their lives that a very, very bad situation globally could be redeemed that there could be liberation, that there could be freedom. And we recognize that in a special way. And at this time of the year, we have movies that come out new or are shown again, such as, you know, Saving Private Ryan and Hacksaw Ridge and those kind of things, because it's about people connect with deliverance, with rescue, with salvation. But the real question on Remembrance Day Forward is, can Don Cherry redeem himself? That's, that's, that's the question, okay? We'll discuss that over lunch. Okay. The second meaning of redemption that our culture connects with uh, comes in the form of uh, what we, we used to have, and that is these uh, things called coupons, which are rapidly disappearing because now most of us have one of these. And so on our phones, we have apps where we can collect uh, points when we shop at uh, you know Superstore, Shoppers, Drug Mart, Esso, all of these places you collect PC points so that when the time comes, you can get some product, right? You can, there's an exchange, or you can get a reduction in your bill, so many points equals so many dollars, and our culture really connects with that. In fact, when I was preparing for this sermon, sure enough, in my inbox, because we collect PC points, you know, the PC MasterCard and all that kind of stuff, there's the redemption event at Shoppers Drug Mart. Well, it's, I mean, people connect with that. So you get to go in and they give you extra points for extra good deals, and then they have bonus redemption events. And uh, Starbucks is the same way. You go in for a drink, you collect so many stars. Sometimes there's bonus stars and then you collect so many and then you get free coffees or free snacks or whatever it is. Our culture understands this aspect of redemption where you trade points that are earned for products. So you gain something through this exchange. But the cultural uh, understanding of redemption, while it tracks with the biblical meaning, the emphasis is way off. And as we go through Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, you're gonna see why. So let's read the text and let's get into it. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we've got this word, redemption. And every other word, every other thought in this text, and really in the book of the chapter that we're in, in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, and the grand story of all of scripture points to this one word, really does. And so to understand redemption, we need to understand everything that goes around with it. But let's start with that word and work out and back in from there. Redemption biblically means this. That word specifically means to release or to set free. So there's an aspect of liberation, deliverance, a bad situation turned around. With the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave, in particular, buying back a slave or captive and making him or her free by a payment of ransom. So there's an exchange. You see the common elements? Someone's in trouble and they need rescue. They need redemption. Secondly, an exchange happens. Something is given, so that's something, someone. Something can be gained in someone's life. The questions that we want to ask today, that I want to ask is, who's in trouble? Who's the slave that needs redemption? Secondly, who paid the ransom? And just what was that? How did this deliverer, this rescuer, this liberator pay? How? Who? And as we answer these questions, it'll become clear just how different the cultural understanding of redemption is from the biblical one, even though they track parallel, the, the emphasis is different. So six this morning, oh, you're cringing already. You say, good thing we have lunch here, right? Uh, six unique emphases we see about redemption in this text. Honestly, this is an entire series all on its own. These are like six mini sermons in the next 18 minutes, okay? So buckle up, first of all. In him, I'm gonna keep this fairly basic, folks, because we need to understand this very biblically. In him, we have redemption. The first thing about redemption it is, is it is in him. And so you ask, who's him? May seem obvious, but we need to state it really clear. If you started in Ephesians 1 verse one and you read the first six verses, six verses, it says six times Jesus or Jesus Christ. And then, verse 7, in him. Listen, redemption is in Christ. He's the deliverer. He's the rescuer. He's the liberator. He's the savior. And we need to state this clearly because in our culture, as, as, as we go deeper and deeper into, into history, uh, the, our understanding as a church of Christology, which is uh, one of the main tenets, right, of the Reformation in Christ alone, you know, grace alone, our salvation is by in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, or all these things, these five solas, right? Christ is central and it is key, it is number one. We have to be clear about our understanding of who Jesus Christ is in our culture because the cultural understanding of redemption places a heavy emphasis on self, what I do, the human effort to redeem myself, the points that I earn to gain something. But the biblical understanding of redemption is so different. And sadly, the, the emphasis we see in our culture is, is not only creeping, it has crept into so many churches, especially in North America, where it is about, it, it, if you, you can do this, 
right? It, it, it's a pep talk on a Sunday morning. It's not biblical. You can do this, right? We can't. We cannot. Listen, this is important. You cannot and I cannot redeem myself. And we're going to find out exactly why in a moment from this text. But if you remember last week, there's this thing called the fall. God's perfect creation, as we looked at two weeks ago, is no longer perfect. Sin entered the world through disobedience to God's command. And that's all. And sin just means I'm going to make my own decision. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to listen to what God has to say for me because I just don't believe it. I don't buy it. It's not true for me, whatever. And sin just simply means to either ignore or disobey God and just go that way and do my own thing. And so when sin entered the world, it permeated everything. It permeated our very nature, not just our actions, but our nature. And it permeated the entire world. Scripture says that the whole world is under the control of the devil. This is his playground. And so after the fall, God did a couple of things. He tried over and over again, and there was a purpose to what he did in all of these things. First of all, he gave us, well, he gave us three things. I'm gonna name them and talk about them. He gave us covenants, then he gave us a cast of characters, and then he gave us individual ca- uh, characters within, within a group of actors in, in this grand story of scripture. They're not just actors, they're real people, and these things actually happen. So you've got the script, you've got a group of actors, players, uh, and then you've got individual characters in, in, in the grand story. So the biblical covenants. God made a covenant right off the bat with Adam. And uh, it was something that Adam uh, it very quickly failed to keep and understand. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham and with Moses and with David. And I wish I could unpack the covenants alone within, within this first point of the sermon, but I can't. But the point is this. All of these covenants, God says, here's my promises to you. Here's the standard and how I want you to live. Here's my laws, my decrees. These will help you because you're in a fallen state. All of them, People were unable to keep. They were all broken, all of them. Not by God, but by us, by man. Their purpose was to point to the one who would not only fulfill all of them, to keep all of the laws and the commands and the covenants of God perfectly, but he would also establish a brand new one in himself, a new covenant in his blood. Who are we talking about? Jesus. That's why the covenants were given. Then you've got the biblical caste, and I, these are uh, groups of people. God gave his people prophets, he gave them priests, judges, and kings. And throughout history, up until the time of Christ, all of these were either rejected by the people, or they themselves fell abysmally short in turning the fall around and making us right with God. And so they were all fulfilled in Christ, who is the priest, high priest, our judge, the king of kings, and a prophet, the prophet, the one who always tells the truth, who speaks from God. Then you have biblical characters within the grand, uh, the meta narrative of scripture. So I'm just gonna list off a few that Uh, Whether you've gone to church for a long time or not, you you probably will recognize some of them. Uh, Noah and the ark. Anybody know that story? Let's start there, okay? You've got a righteous person who saves 
an entire race of people. He saves his people from God's judgment over sin. Abraham and Isaac, a father offers up his son as a sacrifice. Jacob and Esau, the question is, who would have the acceptable sacrifice before God? Joseph and his brothers, through rejection, through suffering, people are saved, an entire nation is saved. Moses and Pharaoh, a deliverer, frees a nation that is in bondage and slavery. Joshua and the battle of Jericho, an entire nation was delivered from the enemy through some pretty uh, unconventional uh, and, uh, means, right? And then there's Gideon, an unlikely candidate who's sitting in a wine press, afraid that God says, you're the man to deliver my people and become a mighty warrior. Now get up and get going. Uh, Ruth and Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, Boaz, he steps in to redeem Ruth after her husband passed away so that the line would continue. And he saves the day, Boaz and Ruth, David and Goliath, uh, God's chosen and anointed, but not yet king on the throne, uh, to whom an eternal covenant was given. He goes out and he slays a giant enemy and liberates a nation that was held captive in fear by the enemy. Then you got Daniel in the lion's den and his friends in the fiery furnace and those guys through their humble submission and obedience and prayer, they faced an oppressive situation of captivity and it was turned around. So what's the point of all these stories? Well, let me tell you. It's that if we would just be more brave and more courageous, we can stand up, you know, to those oppressive rulers in our life and, and if we would just face them, we can continue in the ping pong game instead of going back to, to work, right? Or if we will just look our enemies in the eye and be brave, we can get out our, our slingshot and, and, and we can, and we can uh, face that enemy on the school playground and take him down. <laughs> is that the point of the story? You're supposed to be looking at me right now like, this guy's nuts. <laughs> All of these stories were given to show that it took divine intervention to defeat the enemy and to set people free. Ultimately, it points to the real enemies that we all face, and here's the enemies, Satan, sin, and death. In scripture, death is referred to as the last enemy that was triumphed over by Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus, a liberator, a savior, divine intervention to show us that we need him. I love the story in Luke chapter 24. Uh, it's called the road to Emmaus in the Bible. Jesus had uh, been crucified, put to death, buried, and he rose again. And he had not yet appeared to all of his disciples and they were pretty disillusioned. Here they thought, we, we've got a liberator, a savior who would save us in some dramatic fashion over our enemy, like the Roman Empire and all the oppression that we're experiencing and sin. And they were like, this didn't happen. And they're like talking to themselves as they're going down this road, you know, towards Jerusalem. And, uh, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up uh, and he starts walking with them, but they didn't recognize him. And he's listening to their conversation. And then, he's, and then scripture says, and beginning with Moses, way back, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, 
he interpreted to them or explained to them how in all the scriptures, the things that were concerned concerning himself. He said, guys, everything that you pointed, that you've, that you've believed about the scriptures to this point, they all point to me. And then their eyes were open and went, oh my goodness, it's Jesus. <laughs> he rose from the dead. He's real. And then he disappeared. <laughs> I love that. Great story. Listen, the point is redemption, it begins and it ends with Christ and Christ alone. There is no coupon. There is no app. There are no good deeds. There is no get out of jail free card. Redemption, freedom, deliverance, release, ransom, salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. Anything else is what has been referred to and we've talked about it from this pulpit before at Central, is moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's a form of understanding of God which says that if I just live a moral life, if I'm upright, if I treat my neighbors well, if I don't commit, you know, the big sins, if I, you know, if I, you know, just say if I live a good, clean life, um, I can save myself. That's all I need to be right with God. And oh, Jesus is there, but Jesus is there just to help me along the way if I need him. That flies in the face of the biblical understanding of redemption. And the answer to that is no, absolutely not. We are helpless. In fact, Paul will go on in Ephesians chapter two to say we are not just helpless. We are beyond helpless. We are dead. He said, for you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Dead. And the only hope we have is Christ. C.S. Lewis said, the son of man became a man to enable men, and that's mankind, men and women, to become sons of God, sons and daughters of God. Secondly, redemption is in him. We have redemption. It's for us. Uh... And I think it's becoming clear already, especially if you were here last week and you heard about the effects of the fall and sin in our lives. But I just want to cut to, um, really quick, to two dangers as we think about redemption being for us. We're the ones who are held in captivity and need rescue. The first is this. But I am a good person. Why, why do I need rescue? Why do I need to be freed? I'm not enslaved. I'm doing all right. Listen to God's word, Romans chapter three. None is righteous. That means nobody is right before God. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God on their own. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is why we, that is who we are, friends. And that is why redemption is in him, not us. But the second danger is to say, well, I know I'm a sinner. In fact, um, I've done so many bad things. How could I ever be forgiven? How could God look on me and redeem me? To you who are sitting here this morning, and I would guess in a crowd this size, there are a few, if not the majority, who are sit here and you're racked with guilt this morning because of things that you've done. Maybe things that you've kept hidden And I want to say this to you, Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in this. 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Friends, that's who we are. And that's why redemption is in him. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever, that's you, that's me. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. That's you, that's me. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I, and I love the way Timothy Keller summarized all of this. He said, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. You know what it forces us to do? This understanding of redemption, it forces us to think about, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, the one uh, who was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It forces us to think about Jesus. Number three, in him, we have redemption through his blood. Through his blood. You say, well, why did it take blood to, why did it take death and why did it take blood to secure our redemption? As I said before, the last enemy scripture talks about is death. And Jesus triumphed over death and he put death under his feet. He has authority over death. How and why? Because he died. <laughs> That's the only thing that gave him authority. And it is in all throughout the Old Testament when an animal sacrifice is made and the blood was shed and sprinkled on the altar to represent the forgiveness of sins which people had to do continually over and over again. It is in the blood that is the life of the animal. It is in the blood that was the very life of Jesus. And when he poured out his blood unto death, he, he exchanged his life for our life. <laughs> so that through his death and through his resurrection, we might have life. And we, we must not forget that in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said that we were dead in our sins and in our, in our trespasses. What did dead people do? Like, sorry to be so blunt, but what, what did dead people do? They, well, they do nothing. They do nothing. So even our most feeble attempt to live a good, clean, righteous life, it falls short because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's literally true because in our sins, we're dead. It is Jesus who makes us alive through his death and, who, and through his resurrection. And that is why to the church in Corinth, a church that was so racked uh, with sin, he said, look, Paul started right at the beginning. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. I'm gonna narrow it down to one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Back to Romans 3, I want to pick it up where I left off. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are, 
now listen to this, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've already established that. For whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now there's a big word, propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? Okay, propitiation is an action meant to regain someone's, to regain someone's favor or to make up for something that you did wrong. Okay, so if your neighbor comes to you and says, listen, Fred, I'm, I'm going to Hawaii for three weeks. Would you mind watering all the plants in my house every couple of days so that when I come home, my, my plants are doing okay? Yeah, sure, Fred or Joe, whatever. I'll do that. You completely forget. <laughs> they come home three weeks later and all the plants are dead. And so you need to do something to regain their favor or make up for something you did wrong. So, ah, Joe, I blew it. I will, I'll replace your plants and I'll do one better. I, this summer, I'm going to mow your lawn all summer because I feel so bad for killing your plants. Is that good? Listen, this word propitiation comes from a form of the Latin verb propiter, which means to appease. And through Christ's sacrifice, his shed blood, that he took our place and suffered the penalty of death for our sins through the shedding of his blood, the wrath of a holy God was appeased and our sin was atoned for. The wrong was made right. The amends have been completed. And here's the amazing thing about it. Jesus didn't kill the plants. <laughs> he didn't sin. He did no wrong. And yet he shed his blood to appease the wrath of a holy God. People, like I hear people say, uh, or people say, you need to be saved from yourself. No. You need to be saved from your sins. That's not even true. What's true in scripture is we need to be saved from the wrath of God. It is our sin, our sinful nature and our sinful acts that evoke the wrath of God because a righteous God cannot look at sin and let it go. And so Jesus stepped in and he took our place and he shed his blood, that, that wrath of God, whereby the penalty of, death, of sin, which is death, might be uh, atoned, it appeased. God, it's okay because of what I did. That's what Jesus did for us. I love Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like it used to be, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifieth for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, eternal life, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Oh, how awesome it is. And, and with the hymn writer, we need to say, my hope is built on nothing less, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Number four. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
You know what I've come to understand in my 25 years of ministry is that all people long to be forgiven because we truly have all sinned. And Colossians chapter one says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Being forgiven is so freeing, is it not? It's so freeing. In my relationships, um, my interpersonal relationships outside of God, the people that are most important to me in my life are my wife, she's sitting right here, my kids, and when I have done something to wrong them, when I have sinned against them, and they offer forgiveness to me, and they forgive me, I don't know about you when that happens in your relationships, but I, believe, I breathe a deep sigh of relief, and I go, ah, this feels good to be forgiven. It's a fresh start. We can move forward again. Right? Mark chapter 2 there's a powerful story. One of my favorites as well. Jesus was teaching. He was in a house teaching. And um, some people brought in a a man who was paralyzed. And uh, they wanted him healed by Jesus because they heard that Jesus could do this kind of thing. And so they brought him in. They carried him in because he couldn't walk. And Jesus looked at the situation, and he looked at the paralyzed man and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And people inwardly were, th- were mocking Jesus. They said, like, come on. Who alone, who can forgive sins al- but God alone? This, you're nuts. So Jesus knew what they were thinking and he, and he said to them, you know what, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and go home. But so you know, So you may know that the Son of Man, that I, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looked at the man and he said, get up, take your mat and go home. And he did. What's the point? The point of this story was, and the greater miracle is, his sins were forgiven. Whether or not Jesus performs a miraculous physical healing, the greater miracle in his life is that he has authority right now on this earth to forgive sins. And if you're here this morning and you're racked with guilt and you have sin in your life, which is normal because we all do that, the good news is today that you can be forgiven by God and I would trust by other people as they follow Jesus in obedience. Number five, according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Oh man, I wish I could talk so much about the lavish gift of eternal life of grace through uh, the, the grace of God through faith that Jesus has given us, that God has given us through Christ. But if, if you've ever received a gift, we already have Christmas on our mind, and some of you have already started shopping for Christmas. Gifts? I'm not one of those people. My wife's been shopping for Christmas gifts for like a few weeks already. Like, I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> how do you do that? Uh, I don't leave it to the 24th, like some people. They rush to the mall in the afternoon on the 24th and get it all done, right? Like, I'm not one of those, but anyway. Gifts are on our mind. If you've ever received a gift that you thought was kind of a little bit outlandish, lavish, like you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't deserve this. 
take it back. Like, it's too much. You don't need to do that for me. Have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody just lavished a gift on you? Listen, that doesn't even come close. That doesn't even come close to what God did for you when he lavished his grace on you in Jesus Christ. His gift and his offer of salvation is so lavish, we can't even begin to understand it. And many people reject the gift because they say it's too much. I don't deserve this. But I want to say to you this morning, if that's you, put your pride aside and receive it. Because God loved you so much that he sent his son to die just for you. That you might have eternal life. It's something that he wants for you. Every good and perfect gift comes from our father down to us, who is above, down to us. And his most precious gift of all is his gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to receive that gift by faith. But it is a gift, it's so lavish that scripture, Paul says he had it planned, this redemption thing, he had it planned even before we sinned, even before we were his enemies. Long time ago, Jesus, God had this all figured out. It was his will to save us. All the way back in Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, that through his offering, our guilt would be atoned for. That's how lavish this gift is. It is so lavish that both the Apostle Paul and Jesus said, it doesn't matter how many times you sin. Your forgiveness is always there for you. But it's also so lavish that Paul said, I refuse, I voluntarily stop sinning because I know, um, because I'll do anything now for him who died for me. That's how lavish his gift was. His grace was so lavish that he rescued dead people. Listen, Nobody, nobody in their right mind goes in to rescue a dead person. That's a, that's a recovery mission. And, and you wait till time is safe. You don't cross enemy lines to go in to rescue a dead soldier. You go in later to recover a dead body. And Jesus crossed the most formidable enemy lines of Satan of sin and of death itself to go in to rescue you, to rescue me when we were dead so that he could make us alive. That's lavish. That's an amazing gift. And the final thing about redemption is that redemption is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And here we get a glimpse, a glimpse in the grand narrative of scripture of this beautiful creation that God had, which was marred by sin through the fall and disobedience of man, and God's plan from the beginning of time to redeem us and rescue us in our state of sin and death, and then to make things all make all things new again in the future and to reset it to the way it used to be, and that time is coming. God's plan of redemption included the fact that he, is, that he will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Right now, we live in a time of great division. It is a, is a, a, a time in, in hi, the history of the world where there's this tug of war. Because this is Satan's domain. And our, and our world is racked with evil and sin and atrocities of all kinds. And in, into that, Jesus, God broke through with his amazing light, the light of Jesus. 
some 2,000 years ago. And through his death and his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven, he established what is called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is advancing. It is now, but it is not yet. It is not yet realized in its fullness. But everywhere the church goes and the people of God go and minister in the name of Christ, the kingdom of God continues to be established. But you've got the kingdom of darkness and these two kingdoms compete with one another. But a time is coming because of this single act of Christ when all things will be made right. The curse of sin will be completely reversed and it'll be light and life 24-7 because in him there is no darkness and in him there is no death and all things, things in heaven and things on earth will be made right. (laughs) Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. I'm so looking forward to that. Are you looking forward to that? Is that your hope? That's why Jesus taught us to pray after acknowledging the power and the sovereignty of God who is in heaven. Then he says, your kingdom come and your will be done on on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray for this unification, this deliverance which is yet coming. In Romans 8, I'm not gonna take time to read the whole passage. I think it's on the screen though, Tony. If you put it up there, I'll summarize it. Romans 8 basically says that because of sin, all of creation is groaning and waiting for redemption. Verse 24, it says for in uh, chapter eight, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And we have hope that things will be set right because of the saving act of Jesus Christ. If you can't find it, it's fine. But at the end, there also should be a couple of passages from Revelation, and I want to end this morning with Revelation couple of verses in, 20, in chapter 21 and a couple in 22. We started the series in Genesis chapters one and two with this beautiful untainted creation. Genesis three, the fall, sin enters the picture. The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is God pointing to how he's gonna redeem his people through Christ. And then at the very end, we see that this creation being recreated and reset to its default factory settings. <laughs> Romans 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man just like it was in the garden. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And chapter 22, the first few verses says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb, it's Jesus, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month for the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's that tree, friends that Adam and Eve ate of and disobeyed God, it is now yielding its fruit 
every month to give healing for the nations so that things can be made right. No longer will there be any, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. That is the best news that is ever out, that is out there and the best news that we can proclaim to a world that needs hope. And to people that need hope. And if you're this, here this morning and you need that kind of hope uh, to look forward to, I wanna say, how, how can we together respond? Three ways really quick. Number one, repent. <laughs> Don't let that word scare you. The word repent just simply means to turn. You've been going your own way no need of God. God just simply wants you to do a 180 and go the direction that he wants you to go. The Apostle Paul, when, when he encountered Jesus and Jesus completely transformed his life, he said to Paul in Acts chapter 26, he said, listen, Paul, now that you're different, I am sending you to the Gentiles to talk about me because I'm the only one who can transform people's lives. And in Acts 21, 26, verse 18, it says, I'm sending to them, them, you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And I want to ask you this morning, would you turn? Would you receive the gift of God? his rich mercy towards you in Jesus Christ, would you be redeemed through faith in the grace of God that is Jesus given to you? Lee Strobel said this, I love the way he put it. He said, Jesus Christ did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came in this world to make dead people live. Would you live this morning? If you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your liberator the one to bring you freedom, to forgive you of your sins, to give you hope of eternal life, would you come to him this morning? Would you repent? Today is your day. Second way we can respond is to return. Some people here today have wandered away from Christ and you've let the relationship grow cold and you've returned to your sin and you're living in captivity. Isaiah said to his people, God said to his people through the prophet Isaiah, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Return to me. Maybe there's some people here this morning who just simply need to return to God. You've been there, but your love for him has grown cold. Would you return this morning? And finally, if you repent, if you return, if you've done those things or you will today, the third response is just simply to rejoice. Charles Spurgeon, I love him. The quote's not on the screen, but he said, I thought I could, have, I could have leaped from earth to heaven at one spring when I first saw my sins drowned in the Redeemer's blood. That's how excited he was. And the hymn writer said, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, 
how great thou art.